Hello, welcome to some Derps Talk About Games. I'm your co-host, Mango. And I am your co-host, Buddy. And today we're going to talk a little bit about railroading. But before we do that, Buddy, why don't you tell the folks at home what it is we do on this podcast. On this podcast, we like to talk about uh, games. Um, sorry, I'm sick, so I'm going to be doing a lot of coughing on the podcast. I'm really sorry, you guys. Hopefully okay. you guys won't hear much of that in my yeah, golden maybe, edits. Yeah. Oh, right, yeah, you just forgot that you edit things out. Well, whatever, okay, I hope you edit things out. So, railroading. Um, for those of you that don't know, railroading is a term that gets used a lot in tabletop circles. Oh, yeah, I guess this is a tabletop episode. Uh, it's, it's used in tabletop circles to describe kind of like putting your characters on a track, right? Um, and putting, and like, like on a track that goes from point A to point B, they cannot get off the track, right? If they do, it is disastrous, right? Like, you think derailing a train, obviously, right? Like, this, so this is, like, the, the, the kind of genesis of the metaphor, right? Yeah, yeah. If you and have, if you have a, a story that is point A to point B and it doesn't allow for, for much wiggle room, right, that's railroading, and it is typically a negative term. Uh, it's, it's also used kind of, also describe the behaviors of, like, Players attempting to go off the track and the, the GM pushing them back onto the track um, in, in in the most negative sense in very obvious ways, right? Like, you know, like, um, in, you know, like in, vis in very forceful ways to keep people on the track, sometimes even out of game, you know, like stop, stop going off the, the beaten path, um, which is also generally viewed as very negative, right? As not being flexible to it. Um, but yeah, that's that, the. That, this whole kind of behavior is encompassed in the term railroading, and and as Buddy said, is uh, kind of universally like the term has a very negative connotation to it. Yep. Um, um, but I think part of what it is 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 it falls prey to a lot of a lot of things these days, and that it gets over applied to certain behaviors. So it also at this point means, um, depending on who you ask, any attempt to limit player choice to only only you know the most rigorous of of uh of of directions so you know it's 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 uh it, it's a loose term it, it's a, it's a non-specific term um as as anything that gets overused is you think that's fair yeah and i think um uh and so the reason okay and so to back up a little bit the reason that this came up is a is a confluence of a couple different things one as ever we read an angry gm article about uh kind of like session and, and, and it didn't quite focus on this but it did did mention like some of these concepts right about session zero and how to structure your campaign like with your friends or whatever or, like with the people that you're playing with sort of a thing right and so that was point one and then point two is um a youtube channel that i follow and that i like a lot called idea channel is shutting down uh because like the the main guy is going on to do uh i guess bigger and better things or whatever and he like they've they've done this big q a thing um, where just viewers get to ask him just any questions. And somebody asked him, like, what do you think makes the best Game Master, right? And he said two things. The first thing he said was not to over-prepare, right? You want to prepare um, You want to prepare a bunch of stuff, right, that exists and that, it's ki and that is kind of, like, real. Um, but you don't want to prepare only a specific set, like like a specific set of kind of outcomes because that railroads the players and that's bad. And then the second piece of advice um, that he gave was to, f to let your players follow their bliss, right? Which essentially in, you know, kind of his terms was like, if they get really attached to some random minor NPC, make that NPC the new focal of whatever your story kind of is. Uh, and as much as I like this guy, <clears throat> his name's Mike Rugnetta, um, 
I don't agree with those two principles uh, as thoroughly as he presented them. Which maybe is a case of, like, he presented a fairly absolute case for these things being true, and I want to take a more centrist middle ground. Um, he also but, answered in, like, two minutes, and um, I think yeah, there was there, there to was fill an hour-long podcast. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, plus this is something that I think about a lot because, uh, you know, like, it's something that you and I have talked about in the context yeah. of Hell's Rebels uh, versus, uh, you know, like, other games that we've played, right? I actually think that this is a, a fairly huge problem when it comes to Pathfinder APs, right? I think one of the reasons that Iron Gods felt a little bit, um, uh, you know, a little, like, anorexic almost to me is because of this principle in action. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um... I do kind of want to say off the bat that I also don't think that there's necessarily a right answer to this question or this, this sure. set of principles, right? Like, I really enjoyed Iron Gods for exactly what it was, which was, like, a set of extended dungeon crawls. Um, and there's there's a certain amount of joy in that. Um, and, like, I can, I can enjoy that for what it is. I just know that it's just a matter of knowing going into that situation that that's what you're getting and you're not getting kind of like a, a rich kind of uh open experience that that you could get other places um similarly i, I think that like e even even because this is kind of like not even like a mechanic story axis thing right like um you can go into a rich story based but super linear campaign and i still think you can enjoy it um i think you enjoy it for different reasons obviously um but i do think that those those types of campaigns can be enjoyable um uh and so I, th I think just kind of a part of it's a, a matter of, of style. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah, I definitely, I definitely am on board uh, with these, with, you know, like with, with that context, I guess. You know what I mean? Um, and I think that it's important to take a, I don't know, to kind of like take a, uh, like, like a case by case kind of view of it. In, in plenty of cases. Like, I made this argument a little bit about Hell's Rebels because, like, Hell's Rebels also feels pretty linear, right? And I know what I want to do with it, and so we're, we're you know, moving through <coughs> kind of like the, um, like the prearranged points. Um, but I definitely agree with that first point that Mike made when he kind of says, like, don't over-prepare. Because, like, even though I wanted the idea of the third book to be, th like, you guys running around the countryside... You know what I mean? Like, um, like garnering support out of these factions that I kind of created or whatever. Uh, I didn't know necessarily what those things would look like until I actually sat down to start preparing, like, for the book itself, I guess. Um, and so, and, and, and I think that kind of part of it is, uh, is where, what gives you the opportunity to, like, like, clearly, uh, Marigrug has a big connection to Irie, right? This this halfling that I killed for the pathos. Um, and so me putting in, which is from our most recent session, by the way, so me putting in her sister, right? Almost as like an Easter egg, like nod to, just like as a way to like, to like uh, uh, connect him to that with with even you know a five minute long conversation tether right like those are the kinds of things that i think are are powerful and important to to make sure that you don't forget when you are you know worried about over over preparing but i think that the downside to all of that that like to this kind of thing is that like it gives you less time for prepare to prepare um and i think if you kind of follow uh like the 
if you kind of like follow his uh, advice to its logical extreme almost, you get into a situation where you're preparing a lot of material that like 90% of it the players will never see, which I think is bad. I think that's not good design. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, I... I that's see, that's my controversial statement for the day, I guess. You know, so I, I think... I think it's unoptimal, but I don't necessarily know if it's bad, right? Like, I, I think that, like, in like an ideal world where, you know, your GM has infinite time and can, like, do whatever preparation he wants without any other negative repercussions on him or, or him or her, right? Like, um... I think that that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Like, like I, I think I think I think you're right on kind of like <laughs> practical levels, but I think that like given an ideal universe, I the the the, the best way, quote unquote, to run a game would be to simulate a world, and it's kind of like let the players run in it and let the simulation kind of run in yeah. the background as they do their thing. I but that, do, that's so just I do, practical. So I do agree with that, but I would yeah, like like when I say it's bad, I, I mostly mean for practicality reasons. Okay. I also think that there's a there's a there's a frustration that goes with it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I think one of the reasons that I have had trouble with burnout in the past as a GM, uh, like for instance, famously friend of the cast uh, Nick uh, said that he didn't expect my Hell's Rebels game to last because I have a history of burning out on campaigns and kind of quitting on them, you know, like one or two books in kind of thing. And I think that that, and like that is a, like a very real concern, right? And you have to be efficient about how you create. Otherwise you're just going to get like implicitly frustrated that you're creating all of this shit that like you, that like the players don't see. I mean, I even feel pangs of that frustration in like very minor ways when stuff happens where like you guys meet an NPC and you kind of have an option to like, you know what I mean? Like, you know how, like, um, in, like, Skyrim or, like, Fallout, when you're about to get a quest or whatever, like, you meet an NPC, there's all these different dialogue options, and they're purely inquisitive, right? You can just hit the one that says, I accept your quest, right, and you're move right. on. But there's all of these kind of, like, highlighted ones, and you, a lot of people just want to, like, clear the highlights out, and they, hear, they, like, hear the full context. Well, a lot of the times when you guys meet major NPCs, right, like, meeting Tonric, for instance, for the first, uh, uh, or rather, right after you resurrect Tonric, right? Um, there are, there is that at play, right? I have stuff that I know, like questions of his, that he can answer. Um, and it is frustrating when you guys don't ask those questions or whatever. Now I do want to say, like, I don't mean to like get on your cases about this because I sure. think you as a group have gotten much better about it as time has got on. This, this is the thing that happened all the time in book one, though, where, like, you would read an NPC and I would expect you guys to ask all of these, like, really, like, detailed questions almost about, about like, who that person is and what they and what they do or whatever, and then you kind of wouldn't. Um, but, now, but now you guys actually have the opposite problem where, like, you're asking questions of people who I'm not prepared for, and so I'm making a lot of shit up on the spot. But I think that's a good problem to have, okay? Anyway, but, like, so I think that frustration is very real, and I think when you're inefficient, you engender that frustration, and maybe there's somebody out there who could just be a fucking robot about it and not and not care. Um, I, I think maybe this speaks to, to, to this, this, this original point, though, right? Like, I think there's a little preparation that you can do where, like, you kind of, like, have enough, like, nebulous things floating in the air that if things go, people go into it, you can improvise on it without, mm -hmm. without, without putting too much necessarily forward preparation into it so that you you uh 
like that you feel frustrated if players miss it, right? Like, <coughs> like right. Is it is it not possible to live in a world where like you you, you like you you just enough preparation to deal with eventualities, but not so much that you feel frustrated if somebody skips past it? Yeah, you know, and I definitely think that that kind of world is very uh, is like is very useful, especially in a, in the context of like so when we talk about our smuggler right like idea um, of kind of like you have a ship and you're roaming around and you're just like performing odd jobs to keep the ship running or whatever. I think that campaign is actually a campaign where this kind of like idea is the most valuable because you never get to a point where it's like well they passed this thing on the store like on the story track. And they're and they're never gonna get the chance to like kind of like go back and revisit it, and that prep work that you've done is now worthless. Because in theory, and I and like, and you know, and I've run a game like I've actually run a couple of games like this, so I I know this feeling very well. Like the frustration isn't there because there's kind of an expectation that like things are non-linear, so they could come back. I guess right, if that makes sense. Um. And that really like washes all of that, all of that kind of frust away, uh, because you know, there's the like if the if you present them with five different like jobs that they could run, and they choose number four, numbers one, two, three, and five aren't necessarily gone. Yeah, they're not unusable at one or like once number four, and well, all of a sudden now it, it is usable, right? <gasps> And I think that that's that's like good. That's good design, and that and that really comes down to how you structure your story. You know what I mean? Like I don't think you can run a linear story in that kind of context. Um, and I also think you have to kind of keep stakes in like manageable in in mind. Otherwise, you kind of get into the into the problem of like, well, if you know Alduin is going to destroy the world, why am I worrying about you know like little Mary's doll that she lost in a cave or whatever? You know right. what I mean? <coughs> right. Um Hmm. Uh So hmm. How much how so so this this is kind of related? How how good do you feel about yourself as an improviser? Oh, I feel amazing as an improviser. So, this is the other half of this is that I feel very good at improvising and I feel good about my skills at improvising. Um this is this is the part of it where I want to talk about like some good improvisations that I've done, but I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Oh, I just thought of something. Um, so I feel like I'm a good improviser, and so it's easy for me to rely on those skills in order to not have to worry about this shit. So this is a little idiosyncratic to me, and I understand if a GM who isn't as solid on that wants to over-prepare in order to compensate for that not for like not having that skill but like if you remember we played a game in college where like you were playing like an elementalist or something and your elemental familiar died and yeah. you had to go to like this mage guild or whatever to like get it resurrected right right yeah I remember and, the, that. and there was this and there, there was all of this like you know like w like weird lord of it right like there's there's a there's a group of mages for like each of the different spell schools and the like mages guild perform these like things or whatever and you went to their to, like, the necromancy's tower, and the necromancers were all just, like, creepy as fuck. All of that was an improvisation. Okay. Um, and uh, and I, I thought it was a very good one. I liked that improvisation a lot, so much so that I, like, later ended up kind of, like, incorporating it into things. Um, but then then why do you... So, so you know, not, not, not to be an asshole about it, why, why do you prepare so heavily if you, you're confident in your ability to kind of, like, cover for where you haven't? So, my improvisation is good in the moment but i do not think that it is good in the long run 
I don't think you can string together long, uh, you know, like long running story beats and ideas um, purely through improvisation very well because like, okay. and and this is you know, and this is part of my philosophy on story structure in in like a much more general sense. Um, story structure is really important because. Uh, God, man, this is like in in like a like a media sense, right? Like this is really important uh, because it forces it, it. It is the skeleton on which everything else hangs. You know what I mean? Without good story structure, uh, like plot structure, really, um, you can't hang character arcs off that. You can't hang themes and stuff off of that. When you try and do that, a lot of the time, you get into like the kind of like art house, nothing happens problems of like. A bunch of people sitting around a table talking about mildly interesting things, but it's like really aimless and boring. Um, and so, so from my perspective, the only way that you can do long form story like stories is to have story structure in order to make that like work, right? So like I can improvise details. <coughs> so for instance, I improvised a hell of a lot of the Kolkari stuff. Um, based on the way that you guys were redoing your plan, right? You came up with a certain year, like you came up with a certain set of plans um, and and certain approaches to the village. And I don't even remember which of those things I had set in stone, really, and like which of them were like improvisational answers. But like the but you know the point is inside of the moment, inside of those kind of two sessions, inside of that like mini arc. It's very easy to improvise, uh, but it's hard to improvise a lot of moments in tandem because you very rarely improvise the connective tissue sure. from like scene to scene or whatever that like makes it work. Sure. Um. So so. In that case, kind of. Uh, huh. What's um so. Just, just is kind of like assuming, assuming your players aren't being like like jackasses, right? Like they're not sure. like, like you know, it's not like we decide we find a ship and we're just gonna sail away from Kintargo and go fuck off and do something else because fuck Kintargo. Um, is is there anything that you've like like you've kind of for this chapter and like again, not that I think it's necessarily a bad thing. You, you've set us on this very kind of like very linear path. Uh, for for what we're doing, right? Like we're right. we're bouncing from point to point to point to point. Uh, could you envision a version of this book where you didn't do that and use some other mechanic? I'm not saying that like um, maybe necessarily a good good one exists, but like do, do, or maybe I am. But do, do, do you see a do you, do you see a, a situation where you let things be a little bit more freeform than that? Uh, inside of Hell's Rebels, it's a little bit tougher. Especially these first three books of Hell's Rebels, because they are kind of so specific to, um, like, setting, to, like, set up. Um, okay. But I think later in the game, definitely. You know what I mean? Because, um, okay, so because we all know that the end goal here is to win the revolution against Barzillai Thrun, <coughs> the only way that that, I feel like, is going to be a successful thing... <coughs> Is if I properly set up a, a bunch of different things that then get called back to later, if that makes sense, right? So, for instance, at the end of this book, you guys, I mean, you know, you're building an army to thwart the 10,000 troops that are coming into Menador Keep, but you still have an army at that point, right? And I think, th and 
you know, I don't know that I've telegraphed this incredibly well, but this is the moment where you march your army into Kintargo and take the fight to Barslay Thrun, right? This is what Book right. is about. Uh, I may have said this already. Um, th that book is not, like, can't be successful, it feels like to me, unless I can properly call back to all of these different things that we've been setting up over the first three books, right? Part of this is, you know, Tonric in book one is an enemy, in book two, you know, you resurrect him, right? And now he's part of, like, the Honorborn, uh, and he's one of your allies, right? Those stuff with the Way Watchers, right? You know, uh, the, the, uh, the Kolkari, you know, like, the Kolkari coming, you know, like, coming down, right? These are all things that have to be, like, referenced so that you have a proper feeling of, like, this, we, you know, we are not, we haven't lucked into our rebellion, right? It's not like all of the tools for the rebellion immediately got introduced, right, in book four, as you right. use them in book four, they were introduced, like, they were set up and introduced before now, right? Even things like the Kokari, which is probably the latest, uh, yeah. So, even things like the Kokari, which is, like, the latest on the timeline of, of things where you kind of learn about them and you, you acquire them, um, like, as a group of allies. Like, that is seeded all the way back in Marigrug's backstory, right? <coughs> <coughs> and so I've and I've tried really hard, you know, even with things just like at the end of the second chapter dungeon, you meet a token Leonin to set up an encounter with Leonin in book three to set up, you know, maybe you maybe you choose to make an agreement with uh, Rahadum and bring over, uh, you know, like a, a force of of Leonin to help you take back the city, right? All of this stuff, all it it should like. It needs to be built on stuff, and it's all about like making sure that those foundations are right. And so, in that context, I don't think you can you can do Hell's Rebels in any other way without uh, like without do without like this 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 kind of like pyramid approach, I guess hmm. almost. Um, because that, I think no matter what, you would hit book four and it would suck otherwise. Yeah, I also so kind of talking in this and thinking about things. I think that. Kind of adventure paths lend themselves to being rail railroaded fairly heavily, uh, with with a, couple, with a couple of exceptions. Like absolutely, like um, like King Kingmaker. Um, at least when I played it with with, with Nick in person, I felt like that game didn't feel too railroaded. Um, which is kind of impressive considering Nick is the way that Nick is. No, no offense to him, but like I know he just was like running things out of the book, like. You know, at, at not you know like uh, exactly as they are because that's that's just the way he jams and so, um, kudos to Paizo for that. But, um, I find that with with this and with Iron Guys, even in a lot of ways with Wrath of the Righteous, it's hard to not feel like you know, you're you're just like driving people along, the 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 book's prescribed track. Um, I also think that this is exacerbated by online games. Um, this is something have we, have we talked about this about how like. I, don't know, I think online games just kind of work as a different beast ultimately than uh, than in-person games. I think it's yeah. I think because of we, we've talked about this in end section <laughs> before, but the um, the kind of attention problems um, and kind of like engagement problems that are kind of I, I think those things are kind of inherent to online games, and I think that the that games with that with that kind of problem are more apt to be run on the railroad. Um, in the same way that, like, you can also just get the right group of people who are, like, kind of, like, 
well, I'd like to jump on the train to the next stop, um, which I think is also perfectly valid. I do, ha- I do have to agree with that because I think that there is a certain level of like, you know, I've talked about content munchers in the past, and I think in a certain sense, it being played online conditions people almost into playing it more like a video game than they otherwise would. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I think I agree with that. Like, and and I think the idea that kind of like, in a in a weird way, it's kind of like the D and D equivalent of like mashing the X button or whatever to get through the cutscenes. I I felt that that is a real thing that that's happened. It hasn't happened in Hell's Rebels, as far as I can remember or think about. Um, but it definitely has happened in both Rune Lords and Kingmaker. Or, I'm sorry, not Kingmaker, fucking Iron Gods. Um, where, like, we're, you know, like, we're kind of getting, like, story beats or whatever, but, like, nobody's really into it, and so we're just kind of, like, fast-forwarding through it almost. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a real thing. I think that's a thing that, uh, I think that that's a thing that, like, definitely kind of happens um, with, I also- with online games. I also think it's the thing that happened, like, so I had this game that I ran in college, um, system called Legend, where the players seemed to very much just kind of want to hop on the train to the next point. Um, but I also think part of that was that there were, like, nine people at that table. Um, I think that when you have a lot of a lot of players, it's easy for for things to go in that direction, too, for, like, people's, individu- people's individualism to kind of, like, fade into the background. <coughs> um, and it to be kind of, like, like like people, people not needing to engage as much if that makes sense. Um, I don't know. It's sure. Yeah. Um. Yeah, yeah. I I guess I'm kind of on board with that. I also you know I I would also really wonder how much a kind of like purely like I'm a very story driven person, right? And I think story structure is kind of important. Um, and so outside of a story that I specific <coughs> like. Um, unless you build a story that's, like, specifically structured to kind of be, like, non-linear in this sense, right? Like, unless you're kind of building, like, the smuggler story or, like, the airship story or whatever that kind of, like, looks like or whatever. Um, you're not, like, the, the way that we naturally think about story structure is point A to point B, right? It's three-act structure, beginning, middle, and end kind of thing. Um, and I think that there's a way in which you can play D&D that's built to be almost like Skyrim, where it is an immersion simulator almost first or like something like stardew valley might be a better because i mean even skyrim has like alduin and stuff like that but you know like or like minecraft or something like that you know like where the goals are goals that you and your party set based on the kind of interaction of like the world around you and i actually think you know i have to say because now that i'm on this track i think that this would be an incredibly fulfilling way to play dungeons and dragons in the context of a lot of very focused meetings, you know what I mean? Like with a like with a DM over a short amount of time. Like maybe a version of things where like you say, all right, guys, you know, instead of raiding or whatever, you know, like that time commitment kind of looks like, we're going to meet three times a week for, you know, four hours or whatever. And we're, and we're just going to kind of like go uh, 
And I think that actually could be like really cool and like and like fulfilling. I don't think it has a lot of like long-term longevity in terms of like legs and stuff like that. But I think the same kind of thing you get when like you walk into a new town in World of Warcraft and there's all of these like yellow exclamation points for the quests. Um, or, you know, something like uh, in Minecraft, you know that you want to make a big old castle or whatever. Uh, and so you need to build a mine to mine the stone and then make a bunch of furnaces. So you need the coal, you know, like, like that kind of stepping stone. Um, <clears throat> but like entirely player generated procedure, uh, would work actually kind of like, kind of well for that. Yeah. See, I, I think, I think this is an interesting thing too. Cause like I was, I was actually going to bring this up like purely player generated end goals are, I, I think kind of a tricky thing to handle in, in, in terms of the structure, right? Like, right. Like, there's a level up, like, which is, like, well, you know, we, we, we want to go find better, like, gear, right? Like, sure. Um, at that point, I feel like it's, th that's, like, one of the kind of harder things to kind of balance in, in, in uh, because it's not like, that's not like a story beat, right? Like, that's, that's mm. almost entirely, like, a, a side thing, right? Like, I want to go find a better sword, um... Well, how do you handle that? It's like uh, you you could on the spot make up a rumor about a magic sword in the hills, or you could, um, I don't know. How how would you handle something like that? See, I think that see that part actually seems to me to be kind of the easy part, um, because I think you do just kind of like come up with like a like a quest or you, like you put something in a. I actually think that ideally, what I would do is I would make players kind of have to like go for it a little bit more. Like first of all, I might have each player assign themselves like a goal at any individual time just like as a communicative thing to me so if i start as a level one fighter and my goal is to get a magic sword uh or something like that i can i you know like that's 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 a version of things where i can kind of like prepare it almost um but i like the idea of like the shop in town you know like i actually kind of like the idea the going the opposite way which is the players don't have any kind of specific goals at all right and they get goals based on the things that you display for them, right? So they walk into the town, uh, or they walk into the shop in town, and there's a big great axe on on the mantle in a glass case or whatever. And they ask about the great axe, and it's five thousand gold, and it's this special great axe with this like this history. And now, and now the player looks at that great axe and says, "That's my goal." You know what I mean? I think yeah. that would be the that would be like the really cool way to to kind of handle it. Um, I actually think the, the 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 hardest thing to do about this version of game would be the combat, would be like the, the, the dungeons and the monster work, uh, because the thing that takes up, it doesn't take up a lot of my time to do story stuff, you know what I mean? It right. takes up a lot of my time to do maps and to do monsters and to try and think of interesting encounters, right? And as much as I love the idea in in a general sense of, like, actually, you know, like, actually using the hex exploration system, right, as it was meant to be kind of used, right? And you go out on these expeditions and everybody, and we bought, you know, we bought, you know, we brought this many trail rations because we expected our thing to be this many days, right and like uh you know and we have like our tent and all like and all of that kind of stuff like kind of feels engaging and oh random encounters or you know like all that kind of stuff i also think that there's a danger that it would just feel really kind of like rote and boring once you have your like third random encounter of like you know level two bandits or whatever kind of a thing hmm yeah i, I I'm, I'm thinking about this and kind of like 
the card because uh, in 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 the five E game I'm playing in, we we fought a lot of goblins, um, and it hasn't felt old yet, and I'm trying to figure out why. Because because as you're saying it, that makes sense to me, like cognitively, but like it's just kind of like it it, it like in in the kind of real world practice I've seen it, it, it hasn't been. So a super with hard those problem. goblins specifically, have you played any other five E games besides this? Uh no. Because I think the answer there is that uh, just learning the the system and feeling yourself out is is what is what's going on there. You I, know I what I mean? I don't think that that's true though, because we've played like I know I know my character and his capabilities very well at this point, um, and like I I think I think I think part of it is is the, is is definitely the around the table aspect. Um, part of it might just be kind of that 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 five E combat's a lot less kind of like uh, burdensome, maybe. Um, sure. Um, and 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 maybe I think the the stack the stack curves a little bit flatter in in five E, and so <coughs> and so the the, fi- the fights still feel kind of heightened without necessarily like. Um, like the, the the fights never kind of get to the point where it's like we're going to win and we have to do cleanup or whatever. Sure. Um, yeah, like yeah, like yeah. every fight seems like it still matters. Um, I think maybe that's that's part of it. Also, Interesting. Yeah, I, I would definitely say system mastery because I've run into this a couple of times before, where like the first couple of encounters in a new system are really fun and really engaging even if like kind of everything else notwithstanding just because it's a new system and you're learning the new system and figuring out how the new system works and how your new character works and the same thing is true even for like classes and stuff like that you know what i mean like if i'm walking into a game with a class i've never played before um or like with mechanics that i've never seen before kind of a thing that stuff is like instantly engaging but i think it falls off pretty quick which is why a lot of games die out in that kind of five to seven level mm. range it feels like it you know i think another part of it is for for like us at least is we're we're we're, we're playing a very like talky party mm. and so there's enough distance between all of these things without like we've fought a lot of goblins but we've also had a lot of like campfires where we talk about stuff um or like you know like they're they're the the, the combat encounters themselves aren't too frequent and there's enough meet in between them of kind of just like us the characters being characters that it kind of works out and i don't know if that's just kind of like a uh, consequence of the people that it's it's tended to be with mm-hmm. um that i have to say that kind of thing is like magic i have never yeah. been able to recreate it in the lab if that makes sense we even haven't we've never even really gotten that in like hell's rebels we never yeah. got that in rune lords we never got that in iron gods we got that a little bit in Iron Gods, um, but, like, no more than in any of these other kinds of games. Like, and I, I just don't... I, I want it so bad, and I have no idea how to engineer it. I think it's just luck, dude. I think it's just, like, alchemy. There's just some magic to it that I just don't... Yeah. I just don't know. I, part, part, of, part of me wants to say it's, it's, it's being around the table. Like yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. I think that's I think that's that's like I, w- fair. Um, when, when you're so so just to kind of put a piece into this, like when when you're around the table, um, like 
you're always looking like, and, and you're not like, you know, I part of, in one of my, in several of my Wrath of the Righteous sessions, um, I made the rule that like everybody puts their phone in the the, the kind of the big bowl, sure, um, um, and when that's the case and everybody's kind of engaged, like when everybody's around the table, I think it's easier to be engaged when everybody's engaged. The tendency is for people to push towards interacting in places, right? Like to be doing something. And when that happens, you naturally fill in a lot more space with little character interactions or stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think I think that's something that you could get in an online game. It's just like exponentially harder. You know, I I wonder is it because we refuse to use web webcams? I think like, that there's might a webcam feature in Roll Twenty. You know, I actually have this is this is this is an interesting question. Like, I wonder how many people have two screen setups because I think a version of thing like I don't like the webcams in Roll Twenty because they take up too much screen space. Like right. Roll Twenty is just not optimized. Uh, for that it feels like but i wonder if we had on one thing roll 20 and then on another thing like a google hangout would that with everybody's like webcam would that be good would that yeah help? uh uh that's I, a really that's a really neat idea i almost want to test that yeah i i also think i think it would work better if like if essentially like the main focus is on the webcams right like if we have like a, like you said a hangout or uh or like a skype call i think a skype call would work better. I I, I, kind I of, think you're right. I think a Skype call would be better. Um, just just because Skype kind of puts everybody's <laughs> face up, like Google Hangouts focuses on yeah. the person who's talking. Yeah, um, I just have no idea if the, if people have a setup like that. Like I yeah. have a feeling, you know, like Jimmy's had a lot of computer problems, and I think Warren still uses yeah. just a laptop. I mean, I think it could work if you could like Alt Tab between the, between things, mm-hmm. right? Like you know, it's like you don't need to be on on the table yet. Um. Huh. That's really but, interesting. I'm yeah, really, I, I'm really interested about that. Now. I actually think I I think ideally like a, a tool where like where like you as a GM could like be like we're in like kind of like non board mode and like our mm-hmm. faces are really big and then we could shrink the faces down when we need to look at the board is something that that would work better. I I don't know. I think that, I think that'd be I think that'd be cool. That might be the right way to to, to fix this 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 problem as it were. Um. Huh. You know, yeah. I don't know. I, I never thought about it before. I literally just came up with. I wonder the, if this part is of the testament to yeah. my improvisation skills, you guys. <laughs> I wonder if this is also kind of like a, like, when you've got a map in front of you, like you that, that, that like you have, um, there's a lot there that you don't have to imagine as a player. Mm-hmm. I wonder if the act of having to kind of imagine what's happening without seeing it in front of you. Even if it's even you know, you know when you've got like a lot of like regular table things, it's like drawn lines or whatever. I wonder if that puts you into it that much more, right? Like when when we were in like the tavern, like we were in Hell's Rebels uh, two sessions ago, um, you know, a lot of that was just kind of there in front of me, and I didn't have to think too hard about what that would actually like. Like this is like that that session in the tavern was in terms of that two D picture of it, but when I'm at the table. And there's only like a couple of lines to guide me. I think I put, or even if when there's nothing there, even I think it works even mm-hmm. better. Like I generate that image <coughs> much better, like much, uh, much more vividly in my own head. Maybe maybe vivid's yeah. not the right word, but like I, I I'm putting the effort into thinking about it in those terms. And so the character I'm looking at is my own kind of invention, even if it's not like super permanent or anything. I I think I think that kind of helps that. 
Um, you know, I you know I find this incredibly interesting because I think I might agree with you. Um, I've talked to before about like my very first introductions to D and D being through the Star Wars three five system, um, but we never I never used a battle map until college. Like I never I didn't even have much of a like a. I just didn't fundamentally understand almost because like, you know, like I didn't read the combat section and we were all such theater kids kind of anyway, um, that it was literally like it, we, we still had stats. We still had our character sheets. We still had our, like our dice to roll and everything like that. But movement on the map was basically entirely in the GMs, you know, like, am I in melee with him? Yes. You know, oh, how far away is he? He's 40 feet away. Okay, I make two move actions to get into melee. Like, that kind of a thing. And it worked really well in high school because we played D&D fucking everywhere. You know what I mean? Like, we would just, like, we would play on my friend Jake's porch. We would play in his attic. We would play, uh, you know, in the cafeteria. You know, we would play uh, in the auditorium during stage group. We would play D&D everywhere because we didn't have to card around maps and minis and stuff like that, right? <laughs> and because every like all of the geography was essentially passed through the filter of like you know like an input output of the GM, you lost a certain subset of mechanics like things like flanking, you know what I mean? But even right. in Star Wars, like flanking wasn't a huge deal. It's mostly kind of about cover uh, than anything else. Um, and that really did work. And I think that really did like like work a lot uh, to to kind of like make that that stuff. Uh, like to make that stuff shine in a way we're kind of talking about how like re- like how the context that of the way the game gets played can end up railroading players in certain directions almost. yeah uh which i find an incredibly interesting topic that i didn't even think of before we started like starting the con the the podcast yeah man i don't know that's a really interesting question i don't have a good answer uh, I haven't. I don't have a good answer to all of that. I think there's something to be said for Nick's. Um, you know, like one of the things that we used in college all the time was Nick had eight little pieces um, that were like just like you know like red pawns, t- pawns essentially yeah. like re- you know like a multicolored pawns from like a set of like sorry or something. You know, like one of these kind of board games. And the abstraction of that versus a mini is fucking awesome. I think. Uh, in a, in a lot of in a lot of ways yeah i i hmm. how much i so i i do agree with you um like one of the worst things in the world for me is whenever we're playing one of these online games i spend hours trying to find a picture that represents what i want my character to be Ooh, um fucking tell me about it dude um and it it never quite and never i can never quite find the right picture right like my, my 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 mind's eye of Beauregard is 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 nothing like that picture, and it's mm-hmm. it's 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 crazy that I managed to to to, to do that myself because usually I just kind of like fall out of it, and like when you've got a, a mini like a miniature or a, or a picture that doesn't quite look like what you want it to, I feel like it sucks because like you end up like pushing it in that direction, but when you have like nothing. Like when you have like a formless shape, it's. I think it kind of works. I also think it kind of um, works if you have something that's like kind of close enough. Like it. Like again, in this five E game we're playing, we all have miniatures um, that that uh, that that our uh, GM dug out of his collection, but they're unpainted. So there's enough enough kind of stuff there, and like the differences are kind of small enough 
that it's easy to kind of like like switch things out, right? Like the drow is wielding two two uh two swords, but it's uh but it, he usually uses a bow, but it's easy enough to imagine a bow in his hand or something, right? Um stuff like stuff like that. Um You know what you know what's funny is I know why that's the case, I think. It's because um uh with like playing stuff in real life, because the rest of the aesthetic is lo fi comparatively you kind of round down with the miniatures if that makes sense but like in a in a in an online game where i can go out and i can find like a really cool <coughs> really detailed map um and i can find you know like detailed pictures or whatever and people ask me to blow things up right so that they can see it you know like that kind of stuff that is very high fidelity and so you round up if in the in that sense, right, where the assumption is no longer that this is an approximate, you know, like in an online game, when I show you a picture of what the Savager Demon looks like, this is not an approximation of what the Savager Demon is, even though it is technically, like technically, that's what it is. I took a piece of Magic: The Gathering art and I call it the Savager Demon right. because it looks close enough to what's in my head. I mean, like if you think that that like cognitive dissonance, it like. It like happens for you as a player with your one character. Imagine what it's like for me, okay? With like a hundred, sure. Uh, and like you know, like when when I created the Savager Demon, which is something that I created completely out of thin air. There is literally nothing. I can't even search for. Uh, you know, that's not like I can search for like monster manual art, right? Like I can with like the Bulit. Um, uh. It's like so <coughs> but like you don't see that process of it right i feel like you see a picture and you say this is what this thing looks like right this is one-to-one -one sort of thing and that puts in your head an aesthetic of well that means that my picture of my character is also one-to-one -one. whereas i think the abstraction in a tabletop game goes the other way where you just kind of put a red dragon on the table, but the person says, this is actually a, a blue dragon, but just pretend kind yeah. of a thing. And that gives you the freedom to say, well, you know, my guy has two swords, but, you know, he really uses a bow. Yeah. You I, see I, what I'm saying? I, I think a big part of that, too, is, um, the, uh, is, is, is the fact that the miniatures are unpainted, right? Like, the drow holding the two swords could be, like, an elf holding two swords, right? Like, um, and, like, you, you can kind of, like, fill in the details the way you you want like it's similar you can fill in the details the way you want in your head um a lot of this kind of makes me want to become like you know like practice drawing or like like carving or like you know like modeling so that i can print out my, my picture perfect 3d model um and have just exactly <laughs> what i want but yeah. you know you know, that's you know, to be honest with you, I have to say that even though, like, so even though I just made a whole stink about that cognitive dissonance from the perspective of a GM, I actually find that what commonly happens is I have a general sense of what something looks like, and then I see a picture that's close of it, and I morph my image in my head to that. You know what I mean? Like, seeing the Savager Demon art that I chose made me think about my own monster differently. If that may, like the Savage Demon was initially more of like kind of like a like like the alien from like the alien movies, um, and uh, and that you know like he still doesn't have eyes or whatever like the Savage Demon art, which is um, uh, one of the Praetors uh, from you know uh, one of the Praetors from like a Magic the Gathering set like like Phyrexia New Phyrexia or something like that, um, but like the way in which j just like the way that that 
picture frames his movement uh, really got me into thinking about the the Savager Demon as kind of like a, a like like a more in your face rather than like stealthy monster than I initially thought it would end up being. Like my initial thought was something along the lines of like you're in a room. Uh, and there's this thing, you know, like, and there's this thing moving between, like, the boxes and stuff like that. And part of the challenge is, like, tracking him down. But then when I kind of saw that art, it became a little bit more of, like, well, he can stick to, like, he can stick to walls. And reaching him can be a tough thing. But that's just because, but, like, he doesn't hide. He gets in your face, in a way. Do you see what I'm saying? And, like, that's that kind true. of, and that's, like, a microcosm of a lot of the stuff that happens, it feels like. Um, where I kind of are making different choices about what a like uh, <coughs> what a character plays like um, compared to uh, what the art says. Like for instance, the art that I had of Riot Thrun from the session two nights ago, um, that axe had this like enchantment effect on it, and it rewrote the. It just it made me be like, oh my god, she has like a really crazy fucking great axe or whatever that has all of these different enchantments on it, and that's like the danger, uh, because it has like icy bursts and it has like I don't know whatever else. It had a bunch of stuff, um, and, uh, and 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 so I think that's kind of the appropriate middle ground in a lot of ways. I think that makes sense. Um, I also think that it's a little bit tough with Beauregard because he, it, like, what he looks like is not static. Like, for instance, yeah, I, my Colbjorn Voss picture wasn't amazing. Um, like, I knew I wanted kind of like this Norse brawler look, um, or whatever, and I basically just kind of got like a nipples up, uh, guy with straw blonde hair, which is like good enough. You know, like a muscly guy with straw blonde hair, which is good enough. But I never quite got that. <coughs> that look that I, like, always wanted, um, if that makes sense. But, like, at the end of the day, you know, like, what Corbjorn looks like isn't, like, doesn't matter all that much to, like, the game. Like, it matters a little bit to how I envision him. Right, right, um, right. But, like, Beauregard switching between, uh, you know, Altanis and Rupert, you know, like, and all the other personas or whatever, like, it's tough to do that when you always have the same Beauregard image. Yeah, image. On, and on I his... think, by the way, that it is not a good answer to like create alternate things because then you're just going to run into this confusion of like, wait, holy shit, who the fuck is that? Yeah, like all the time. It's funny because I think that the picture I have looks more like what I think Altanis looks like than what Beauregard looks like, um, or at least you know, like what he looks like when he's being Altanis than when he looks like when he's being Beauregard. Um, yeah, fair enough. Uh, well, you know that uh. Uh, that, that's just the way life is sometimes. Uh, why can't, why can't I commission artists to do all of my Dungeons and Dragons artwork? I've always wanted to commission, uh, like commission an artist to do, to do stuff. I also think that I'm a little predisposed to kind of that level of ab abstraction just because like so much of my like RP experience comes in the form of World of Warcraft where like. I kind of have to accept the options that the game gives me in order to properly describe my character in a lot of ways. You know what I mean? Like, it's actually more of a faux pas in the context of WoW RP to, like, RP that you are wearing something that your character is not wearing than it is to, like, 
just like fine you know what i mean like the expectation is that whatever you you are wearing the armor that you are wearing right and you can you know little details you can change like how many fucking like people have scars or whatever but like you better believe that if you're a hunter and you have one eye shout out to borrowed time um that you have you have to go in game and find an eye patch and transmog it right because if you don't do that people won't you know like kind of won't respect that in in the context of your of your rp and that makes sense i guess and so and so like in the in a way like having to work with a game (coughs) having to work with a game that naturally kind of um uh puts puts limits on on the amount that i am capable of abstracting um yeah i don't know yeah yeah I, i get that um, but I think we've gotten a little bit off topic here. Um, That's true. That's real. That's a real thing. Um, I do want to say one more thing about overpreparing, um, which is something that I see is I see people who prepare both problems and solutions. And I think that's bad. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. My philosophy when it comes to preparing things is I like to prepare situations, but not, you know what I mean? Like. I don't want there to be a predetermined solution to how that situation gets closed. I do want to say that I think it's important to have at least, like, a solution present itself in most cases. You know what I mean? Like, for instance, with the Kolkari, it was an obvious solution for you guys to figure out some way to get yourselves in the fighting pit to kill uh, Zerini. Um that was that was like the solution that I built into the system in case you guys like couldn't come up with something more clever. But you did, right? You did come up with something more clever. And so it is my responsibility as a GM when you react to a situation by being clever that I go with that reaction. And in so far as players following their bliss means that I'm one thousand percent on board. The last thing I like, I hate the thing that I think is really bad. Um, and that I've seen plenty of times is GM say that like, no, you can't approach this from any other way than the predetermined kind of like choices that I've given you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, actually, uh, speaking of our, our, our favorite person, we, we steal things, uh, steal ideas from angry GM has an article about this. Um, and he, he, he basically advocates the same thing. It's like, have like people like options but like letting them free form is not always what they want to do so like give them three or four options and then let them have a creative option if they want to but having like the options that they can pick from in front of them is is better because it makes them feel like they have a choice <laughs> Ooh, um, interesting and then let the creative people go go nuts if they want to you know that's actually really funny because i think that almost like three like three or four is too many i like i like giving one or two and kind of calling it and mm. saying you know what I mean? Like, and I, and I split, I like, I especially like setting up a lot of context and you guys are very good at this. This is one of the things I think is most successful about Hell's Rebels after we've just like shit all over Hell's Rebels for like half this podcast. <laughs> one of the things I think is most successful is that you guys are very good at being thorough with the situations that you are given, um, uh, which allows you to kind of find the path that you want to take given like the right set of context. Like, I think it's important to have at least one solution so that, if all else fails, they like the players have an out. But I think you do one solution, and then you have a lot of open-ended context that you can give them about how things exist, so that they can like interface with it differently. If that makes sense, do you know what I mean? 
Yeah. Um, I actually, yeah. I, I, I've, I've had a thought brewing kind of about Hell's Rebels, um, and I think this is kind of a structure, I think this is just a, a thing that you can't do and, and have it work right and kind of like a, because I think this relates to what, what you were just talking about, is that I think if the, the kind of, the rebellion was a single point to resolve, rather than kind of being the driving force of like three or four books, I think it would feel a lot less railroad, right? Like if it was like, you know, Bard's Life Through is here and you need to overthrow him. And I don't know how you do this right. Like I'm not, I'm not saying I have a great answer for it, but it's like, if that was like the focus of like, you know, like a, a like it feels like the, the way that the rebellion has to happen is kind of very set. But if it was just kind of like a thing to do and you kind of like, you know, like, you know, like had a couple different ways for us to do it or another one and you stretch that out a little bit, I think that it would work better, right? Like if the if, if the actual rebellion itself were like a task to tackle rather than being like the focus like the focus of an arc. Um I don't know how I don't know how you would implement this because because very clearly this is kind of like the, the, the thrust of this entire campaign path. But I think by putting <laughs> it at that level, it makes it harder to actually approach in kind of any way you want to because of the things that we've been talking about, right? Mm. It's very hard for us to, like, for for you as a GM to prepare, like, this, this three, four-book arc while simultaneously letting us approach overthrowing Barcelona through in the way that we, the any way we want to. Like, maybe if in session zero, or session one, rather, like, you know, this kind of came up and we started talking about how we eventually wanted to do it. You could write it out from there, but you definitely can't do an adventure path off of that, right? Like, So, interestingly, so I think there's a couple points here. One, I think that you're right. I don't think that it's, essentially, it's impossible to do that insofar as winning the Rebellion is a multi-book arc, right? Um, because you set out from minute one knowing that you want to overthrow Bars Lythroon and defeat, and like, and, and stage the... Um, and stage the rebellion. You know right. what I mean? Um, but I... So, but the thing, so the thing is, though, is that means that you need to then scrunch that down into a single book somewhere, kind of a thing. Right. And then I feel like you fall into Iron God's territory a little bit, where it's like, each book has its own miniature objective, and like the the greater sense, of, or like Rune Lords is also like this, um, where like the greater kind of objective kind of is ethereal and, imma and immaterial and kind of falls apart. Like one of the things about Hell's Rebels that works is um, all of the, like everything that you do always has this driving motivation of how will this help the rebellion, right? Even tiny little <laughs> considerations like what do you do with a half a session meet of, uh, you know, like of a family on the road, right? The frame of reference there is the, like, is the rebellion. How does this help our rebellion? And I think that that, that aspect of it is very good. Um, but yeah, I don't know how you, I don't know how you would be able to tackle that without just like scrunching it down into being like a book arc. And at that point, now you have five other books to fill. You know what I mean? <coughs> yeah. So I, like, do you successfully rebel against the throne in the first book? And then the next five books are about ruling Kintargo? That's actually kind of a neat idea, but I don't think that it makes a lot of sense given that you're at best level four characters, right? Yeah. Uh, I think part of it is that like everything's so close in like in 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 the in hell's rebels right like like barcelona is right there right like mm -hmm. he's not like it's not like you know 
his agents have started um, pushing us in, and then like he's eventually going to show up, and like when he shows up, we can deal with him. He's there, but like it's kind of it kind of feels like there's like I think part of it, I think part of it too is something you just spoke to, which is like you'd best be level four characters, which is that there's a level of difficulty that we're or there's a level of, of impossibility that we're aware of as players, but doesn't kind of make sense in universe because you know, kind of levels aren't real things in universe, uh-huh. almost, right? Like, we as players know that we probably can't take Barzillai Thrun because he's probably a lot higher level than us. Yeah. But our characters, like, that kind of, like, the the level the, the difference between a level 1 character and a level 15 character is kind of, like, does come out a lot in kind of, like, character, in, in character. Um, but it's not as big as as it is mechanically, right? Like, like, I, I think that like, you know, like you, you might expect that like a regiment of, 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 of soldiers should be able to take down bars, lie thrown given kind of like the right opportunity. Um, or even like, an, like a level one assassin should be able to take like, you know, like an assassin should be able to take down bars, lie thrown given the right opportunity. Um, and like what does what stops that from kind of happening is that like the ability to, to kind of like 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 the the kind of like practicalities of that generally kind of fall off wrong for a lower level character but what it actually ends up happening is that like even if you can get to the throne room as a level 1 assassin you can't kill Barzillai Thrun cuz his saves are too high or something like that which is which is kind of like a, a weird breakpoint where the kind of the i think the abstraction kind of fails to meet um, what you kind of want in a fantasy? Well, I, so I, I think uh, I think I think this kind of, in a way, um, I think in like a larger point, assassins are impossible characters to do in D and D just based on the way the system's brought up, and that that's a whole other discussion. Um, but I think kind of like tendrils of why that is kind of push into into this kind of thing, right? Like, I think that like a group of rebels should think that they're able to take on. Um, take on bars like given the right opportunity if it were to present itself but even if that opportunity presented itself to us we know we couldn't do it because we're not the right level to do it at that's which, if, that's an interesting idea but uh so the uh, this is actually something i thought about a lot which is why i front-loaded a lot of the campaign with talk about how barzillai is incredibly good at dealing with these rebellions sure. you know what i mean right and this is also why like you know the main the main plot point at the end of book 1 is that your super high level ally gets killed right you can't you know what i mean like he yeah. he allows you guys to jump start the rebellion and everything like that and solve some problems for you right like with rewriting people's minds and everything like that but Barzillai is better. Barzillai kills Gondor because he's better and he's smarter about it and he recruits stronger allies, right? And yeah, and you know, you start... And then on top of that, he starts book two by taking the guy that he just successfully used to kill your high-level ally, right? And then killing that guy just for fuck... Like, just for fun, essentially. You know what I mean? Like, just to prove a point. Um, and I think, and, and all of this stuff is kind of built to kind of communicate in a way that is very real in the story sense, right? Like, like I hammered this home a lot and to a certain extent, I actually think that I, to a certain extent, I think I ended up haphazardly railroading you guys because I was making this point so emphatically, which was that Barzillai Thrun is very good at dealing with rebellions. And if you are not careful, he will stomp you out like a 
bug. You know what I mean? That kind of a thing. And in a way, the kind of choice that we're talking about, like there's theoretically a version of Hell's Rebels where there's a choice between you going kind of political with your message, right? And being kind of like an overt political, but like a nonviolent menace, almost like the, like the Martin Luther King kind of route. Uh, you going violent with your, me like, with your message, right? This is like the Spartacus route, essentially right from the get-go and then there's the kind of like the secret one which is the one you guys right. kind of took and i think i ended up which is my fault in, in a way because you know insofar as player conditioning is a thing i conditioned you guys to act this way um i kind of forced you down that stealth path because i laid on so heavily like i laid it on so thick that barzillai was such a threat and that you would be instantly fucked if you if he ever figured out who you are kind of a thing you know what i mean <laughs> but I think a more yeah. perfect version of the game, and you know, and, and to a certain extent, by the way, the the adventure path does this better than I do because first of all, it allows for all three of those to kind of exist after the first book. Like the end of the first book is you making that choice for yourselves in a lot of ways um, about which, like, about how you want to go, uh, kind of like public with your rebellion and how you want to like uh, interact with it. But they have like the stupidest like justification in there for the reason that Barzlai doesn't want to kill you. Um, which is, like, he thinks that you're, you know what I mean? Like, he thinks that you're just, like, too minor a threat to, like, waste time on. And I was just sitting here, and I was reading that, and I was like, this is a guy who preemptively burns down, you know what I mean? Like, he, he murders the whole Victor Cora family. He burns down this, like, hotbed for, like, rebellion sentiment in, you know, like, in the docks district or whatever. And he's, like, and now he's, like, well, it would cross a line to, like, murder these five people in their sleep when they're level one. It's, like, no, a fucking course he would. You idiots! Like, and yeah. so I I wrote that inconsistency out and un and like unintentionally wrote that kind of conveyance in, which is unfortunate. Um, but yeah, that I I'm I'm definitely kind of on board with this idea. I I do find it funny, like, uh, I you know like I like the idea that you guys kind of have to att like attack bars live from. Uh, story angles by recruiting these allies, you know what I mean? Like, a lot of these ally recruitments that happen are because of you interfacing with the story and everything like that. Um, but, like, I, there hasn't been a lot of, like, mechanical... You know what I mean? Like, the, 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 I feel like there hasn't... There haven't been a ton of, like, mechanical challenges that you, where you have defeated Barzillai in that same sense. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <coughs> I don't know. I don't know how to feel about that, I guess. Yeah, I I I have to do some thinking on it. I think I think that that might warrant some talk on its own later. But we're a little bit over time. Not that it's a big deal because um, unless you had anything else you want to talk about, railroad. No, no, I don't. I'm. We I'm can good roll to our, we can roll into our weeks, which would start, of course, with the session of Hell's Rebels that we played. Hey. Yeah, we did play that session of Hell's Rebels. Yeah, with the fucking Bulit in the yeah in the pit. Yeah. Um. I don't know. I, I, I don't really have a ton of thoughts on it because it was just kind of like a, a combat. Not yeah, that's I a problem. To, I, I do have to say that I was, uh, in a weird way, I was a little scared because part of my thinking about this session was that uh, Alaric has fly and he can kind of he can kind of defeat the encounter just by casting fly on everyone. But my whole thought was essentially that that was kind of a time intensive and a resource intensive process that if he wants to do that, that's kind of fine. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And then he ended up not being there because of, like, a work conflict. And I was like, well, I guess I get to run the encounter as I, like, built it. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep. No, that was, yeah. that was... I don't know. I was just trying to think of... Uh, I was just trying to think of Nito. 
Nito Nito encounters. I like the idea of a you know this whole idea came from came to me because I was thinking about Jaws, um, and I was kind of like, wouldn't it be cool to kind of do Jaws with like a Bulleen? And I eventually, when I first wrote the like the mini arc for the for the Alchemists Guild or whatever. Uh, I wrote that out to be like a Jaws thing where they go and they send you to they send you to go find this massive bulead and kill it sort of thing. Um, but then I found that that was kind of hard to sustain multiple sessions of. Right, and, right. And I also wanted to and like the reason that this arc has been the one where you talk to you know what I mean you talk to some refugees right and learn what just like regular people think about the rebellion and think about Barclay Thrun right you talk to the two of your organizations uh, that you have already allied with in order to see how they are interacting with one another and what they're you know what I mean and like uh, uh, like that stuff right this one is just kind of like hey there are people running around killing you know Saint Senex people giving a little like texture and context to that kind of stuff I thought that this stuff was important in order to make like the traveling across the countryside sense make like work and like make sense I guess because um, otherwise I didn't like in a way I didn't want it to feel like a hub thing where, like, you just keep bouncing between different, like, hubs or whatever. But I also know that, you know... I also knew that it would be a multi-session arc in order for you guys to go kill um, uh, Zerini. You know what I mean? And deal with the Kulkari. I knew that it was going to be a multi-session arc for you guys to do the defense of Maple Seed Brook. So I feel... I, and so the Alchemist was the one that I was kind of like, you know what? We'll just put the actual dealing with the Alchemist and the Druid into one session. Um, and we'll take the other sessions that were allocated to this to just kind of do general countryside like maintenance work almost <coughs> yeah no that's, that's that's that sounds about right yeah i mean it's nice that you guys put this one right in the middle too because i was a little afraid that it was going to come right in the beginning or right at the end or something like that like you just don't care about the alchemist until like the seventh priority and by that point you've gone you've just done the hub world thing six times so it's like fuck but it's nice to have broken that up i guess a little bit i don't know i didn't uh i don't really have much else to, to yeah yeah i don't know um <laughs> I, I really combat yeah it was it, it was it was just a basic combat i spent the whole thing as as a raven Ooh. uh <laughs> which i which i uh, retconned at the last minute. Themes, uh, you guys. Themes. Yeah. No, I just really like... So, I should really replace... Because we've been talking about this so much, I really should replace my picture with a different picture that I had found um, that really actually fits Beauregard a lot better. I'm going to find it and replace it in, in the in the thing. Cause that I sounds like good. <laughs> and I just have to find the fucking picture again. Um, maybe, it's, maybe it's on my Pinterest account. I made a Pinterest account just for... Uh, just for, uh, uh, fucking D&D &D pictures. Dude, don't, yeah, dude, fucking 1 million percent. I pull so much shit off of my Pinterest account. It's actually kind of, it's kind of legit. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I don't really have much else to say about that House of Rebels session. Um, so. Yeah, I don't think I do either. So what, uh, what else have you been playing this week? I saw that you played a little Pyre yesterday. Yes, you. I, I saw that you watched. You play Pyre a little bit. Um, it's like basketball. Yeah, it's it's like the weirdest fucking pas uh, basketball. Um, I really did not get a very good sense for how that game. 
plays, I guess. Uh, I, I also wasn't paying a ton of attention, because I think I was doing something else at the time. Like, I was like, playing Total War or something, and only kind of, like, occasionally glancing over. Um, but, yeah. Tell yeah. me, do you, do so, you like it? You're on board? So, I'm not, I'm not sure. Here, let me, let me, let me think about it. Um, hmm. So, so just to, to kind of give you give you full context of, of what Pyre is, it's you uh you you it, it's three players or three three characters on each side, but you can only move one at a time. The three must act as one. Oh, um, and you kind of pass the the, the, the this orb around, and you try and get it into your opponent's goal, and it takes health <laughs> off of it. Um, the kind of things are is that like you can just, you can banish the other players, um. And if you don't have the ball, you kind of statically have this, uh, this aura around you that that kills people, um, or that that will banish people if they step within it. Um, and if you're not, and if you're if you your team is not positioned with the ball, the character you control of can can uh, throw it, can like can like direct it and throw the aura out to to banish people. Um, and um, and it, it it's it's very interesting. All the characters kind of all the different races kind of have different abilities associated with them. I think it's really cool. Um but I also think that there's like I'm not so sure how much I like the core game and not because I don't think it's a well thought out game. I don't think the AI is smart enough. Um and maybe Ooh, and, interesting. It did seem really easy when you were playing it to be honest. Yeah. Um but like I've I've gotten myself in a situation like maybe it's just the the game isn't super Maybe I just haven't been pushed to like the the right kind of strategies, but like, it feels way too easy to just kind of like pass it to a fast character, have the fast character run around a bunch, and then dunk it. Um, and maybe in a PvP situation, I'd be forced to kind of like play better. Kind of, I don't know. I feel like it also kind of gets to like the same problem that like basketball as a sport gets to, which is like. Defense, there's not a lot of defense that gets played in basketball. Um, and I don't know if that's, like, something inherent to basketball because I don't know enough about basketball to talk about it. But, like, I know that, like, games of basketball usually get into the hundreds of, you know, like, the over 100 points per team. Um, and so it's more a matter of, like, you know, scoring real good than it is about, like, uh, than it is about playing good defense. I think that kind of, like, hurts <coughs> kind of the metagame in a way. Oh, I'm 100%. I, so... Despite the fact that I live in Los Angeles, where basketball is basically the biggest sport around, um, in terms of like professional sports, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like in New York, uh, it's uh, it's obviously baseball, um, for instance. But um, I have never been, and also despite being like six foot four or whatever, like I've just never been a basketball person, specifically because I like defense and I like playing defense. And the fact that there is no defense in basketball drives me fucking insane. Like when I played hockey, I played defense yeah. and. Uh, when I played football, I played defense, though I never played, like, actual, real, like, organized football. Just kind of, like, pick up football. I'm always a cornerback. Um, and uh, and so, like, that's, that's like, a frustrating – you know what I mean? Like, that's, really like, a frustrating thing about basketball, and I definitely got the same feeling uh, coming from this. I also have a feeling that, like – you know, so, like, I'm told that games like FIFA and, like, Madden and stuff like that are good games, I guess. Um, and I don't – I don't actually think that's true controversially uh, i think that those kinds of games only get good insofar as they become rpgs uh the best example of this i can think of is nfl street or really any game from the street franchise um 
because or also like the backyard if you ever played like backyard baseball or anything like that um because essentially what happened uh, was they realized that, like, the progression nature of, like, you buy a player and over the course of a season, over the course of games, you level him up and you get him better. And now all of a sudden you have a quarterback who is good at, you know, passing, right? And then, but, like, you also could level up your quarterback to be really good at running the ball or, like, good at, like, fake handoffs or just, you know, like, whatever, like, whatever kind of skills you want to be. That is a version of football that I have found to be systemized well in a video game. But the kind of, you're playing football and watching it like a television show version of the game, which is re really kind of what I feel like Madden and FIFA have become. It is more along the lines of watching the game while having a little bit of control than it is about playing the game. Uh, the most obvious example of this being that you watch it from that kind of bird's eye-ish isometric view that you, you know, it's the same camera angle, essentially. Um, and uh, and so I wonder if there, like, I just, I like, I wonder how much you can see, you can change the rules in a game like Pyre from a game like basketball to make it systemize better than it does. Mm-hmm. I'm also, by the way, completely willing to be wrong about this stuff. If yeah. somebody, you know, if, I, if one of you want to come on the podcast and tell me why Madden and these and like FIFA or whatever like are good games, um, feel free. I mean, I, I think I think the the thing there is just kind of like it's 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 a. I think you're thinking about it in the wrong kind of way, right? Like, it's not about the character. It's like League of Legends, right? Like. You're you're playing ultimately for for mastery of the system, rather than of, in like quick quick matches rather than kind of like developing your characters. Um, no, uh, so um, so in a way I get that or whatever, but I still think League of Legends gives a fundamentally good framework to do that. When I haven't felt the same, <coughs> when I haven't felt the same thing from like Madden or FIFA. I I mean well, I haven't what, played what, what, a ton of Madden or FIFA. All right, well, but well, I've, what, I've what's the difference that you feel there? Uh, what's the difference that I feel there? I guess I feel as though the rules of the game make more uh, sense and allow for more diverse strategies than it felt like I had access to in FIFA and in Madden, I guess, in a way. Hmm. I don't know. I just, I don't know. I, 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 when I get those, when I, when I play those games... I couldn't help but not like them. And the kind of conclusion that I reached was I was like, this is a simulation for people who, you know, like, like I, don't also, I also don't like watching soccer or football, really. You know what I mean? And so, like, my, so my, my read on it eventually kind of came down to, like, yeah, like, this is more of a system for people who like to watch this stuff than it is for people who like to play it, I guess. Because, like, I, I enjoyed playing football. I enjoyed playing soccer, like, as a, as a person, I guess, but I just felt like that. I don't know. Maybe that's like actually. So now that I say that out loud, I think that's a better like version of the mistranslation. Almost is it doesn't feel like I'm playing football when I play Madden, or like I'm playing soccer when I play FIFA. You know what I mean? Like, I, you, and and I think that is what sucks about the simulation. I I, th I think that's kind of like, I, I think you're mm -hmm. uh, again. I, it's not supposed to be like. Be, be, you, I think I, you're kind of like a, a, a direct coach in those games rather than being the actual players because, you, you know, you're not... 
like when you're playing a game, you're kind of like are your 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 individual cog in the machine, and you're playing it that way. I think there's there's you know a, <coughs> a place for that type of game too, but. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, this is what I liked about NFL Street, dude. The camera is right behind the player that you're in control of, you know? And, like, and even though it's not, like, first person, obviously, or anything like that, you get a sense, you know, you you choose the movement of this character based on a, a set of, like, real-world characteristics that, you know, like, that makes sense. So, like, even though I'm third person behind, you know, whoever it was, right? Uh, Peyton Manning was probably playing then. Um, I still... Peyton Manning doesn't watch himself throw a football from where the television cameras are are pointed at. You know what I mean? And I also feel like if I'm a coach, then the better simulation for that is like any of these kind of like football manager simulators. You know what I mean? Where the games are completely abstracted out. You like you set you set right, game plans and you set plays and stuff like that. But like at that point, it is you right. you know like you need to set up the cl you need to, to to wind up your guys correctly so that when they right, start the, unwinding you, in the play clock it all works you're, you're out kind of, you're, you're kind of hitting the the wrong like piece of of the uh, uh, of what the the fantasy is supposed to be it's like it, it it is really the the armchair coach type of position which is not that like you could tell people what to do but it's like if you could control all of the pieces you could make the game turn out the way that you wanted it to Right, like, which is not something that you can do in real life. Yeah, that's true. I guess I, I, just, I don't know. <laughs> no, it, it, you know, it is, it is what it is. I, I'm sure. I like. I know that one of our longtime listeners is a big FIFA fan, and so I'm sure. Please feel free to give me the yeah. feedback necessary to correct this viewpoint. This is an incredibly uneducated viewpoint as well. I have not played a lot of FIFA or Madden because I played them and I was like, this is awful, and I stopped. So, like, <coughs> I don't know. I also wonder if, like, you know, in the same way that we talked about, like, RPG mechanics bleeding their way into, like, FPSs and everything like that, have they made their way into Madden? I can't remember the last Madden game that I ever played. Um, and I did, and I do like certain aspects of it. I have to say, like the the kind of progressing progressing through your season and stuff like that. Like that stuff all works, but the, the actual, you know, it's like it's like a game of Total War almost, but like the battle system is awful. Where I felt like out of you know like the campaign almost is is good, but then when I go in and I play these games, it's awful. Um. Yeah, I, I think that they might have introduced some stuff like that. I don't I don't know like I don't know cuz I haven't played in a while either and I only I only ever play versus in these games cuz I don't care about like the single player campaign. I play it for the same reason I play like say like a Call of Duty mm -hmm. which is like a, a kind of like jump in and play some stuff and Madden's one of those games where like it's it's technical enough that like if you're a good player you will wipe the floor with a with like a a, a, a really bad player kind of like a fighting game um or really an experienced player. So, um, I, the only people I know that play those games now are the people that are in it, into it enough that they, they can wipe the floor with me. So I haven't played it in a long time. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. You also like watching football though. Yeah. So you um, are hypothetically inside of the, like the set of people that I'm creating to be like predisposed to liking. These yeah. Games. I just don't like, <coughs> I don't know. Like, I don't know enough. Like the, like my favorite football games, the football game to play is blitz. And that's just cause it's like goofy and like arcadey fun um rather than because i think it's a good simulation right like um it's 
basically like basically the stats don't really matter so much it's mostly about like kind of playing this arcadized version of football which i enjoy um men i could see myself getting into if i cared enough but i don't so like i can't like i don't know enough about like say play selection to be an effective uh madden player um essentially mm-hmm. uh Hell, I played a bu- over Christmas. I played a bunch of uh, Tecmo Bowl with my brother um, on the NES Classic. Oh my we, god! Uh, isn't that the one with the really? Isn't that game like incredibly broken? Uh, yeah. Um, also doesn't play like real football at all. I think there's a. I think I, I have to say that I have played a ton of like arcade versions like that that I think are fun and good. Um, uh, the is Tecmo Bowl the one? There was okay. I man, you you wouldn't know this reference. I bet. Uh, there's like a Family Guy reference about like an old NES or SNES football game where just like one player just like had the most ridiculous stat line. Yeah, that was like Tecmo Bowl two, maybe. I'm tra- yeah, I'm trying to think. Yeah, I know, I know what you're talking about. I have seen that reference, um, but it's not purely like the old old Tecmo Bowl didn't have. Um, it's Bo Jackson in yeah yeah in yeah Tecmo yeah. Bowl. I just looked it up. But it, it's 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 the old old Tecmo Bowl didn't have individual players in it um i don't know what what maybe it was for like the because there's also that like like uh uh there, there was something different about it because i um maybe it is regular techno tech mobile um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm watching it now, and uh, I I don't know how much this is a joke or if this is real. Cause cause he he wasn't like named. I don't think. I don't um, know. Maybe there's different versions. Uh, maybe not. I don't know. I just I just don't remember this level of like player differentiation. Like, I don't know. See, you're just not using the elite, the elite Bo Jackson strats. No, I mean, I always play as the Giants, or or as New York. Of course you do. Um, Because, you know, what else would I play as? Um, (laughs) I I have an old (laughs) NES back in my home, in my my, my ancestral home, uh, uh, that I used to play all the time, Mm -hmm. um, which is how I learned about how Nintendo is the best. Um, Yeah. uh, I was expecting a laugh out of you from that one. Never mind then, I guess. Uh, I'll just let that go. <laughs> um, but anyway, how was your week? Uh, shit, my week was fine. I've just been playing... What have I been playing? I've been playing a lot of Total War. I eventually stopped playing Bretonia because I was like, fuck it, I want to play Durthu and the fucking Wood Elves. And so I played the the, the Wood I I've been playing the Wood Elves. More and like I am now Durthu. at that point of... I am I'm now at that point of uh, of having won the game uh, like definitively essentially like nobody can really like stop me anymore but it was actually it was very cool I like I like wood elves a lot wood elves are wood elves are a really neat uh, like faction to play in game um, because like they're very missile heavy obviously uh, and everything like that um, but one of the things that they don't have is any artillery. And artillery is really useful in Total War games just because the presence of artillery forces your opponent into action. Even if you're the attacking player, if you sit there with your artillery, you can just hit, you know what I mean? Like you, you force them to close the gap because otherwise your artillery shits on them, um, essentially. And so even though they're a very missile-heavy focus faction, 
Um, the artil they don't have the access to artillery to force your opponents into you. And so you ver you like you a lot of the time what you have to do is like move up in order to get your missiles in range, but also kind of like like move around a little bit because your melee units are just inherently worse than basically everybody else's melee units, right? Um, and so <coughs> and so you end up in a spot where um, you are pretty accurately representing the uh, like the kiting gameplay um, that the wood elves like really want you to play. Like all wood elf missile units can fireball moving, right? Um, and a lot of them can fire in all directions, so like you can be running backwards but firing forwards, essentially like that. And so yeah, like it's I don't know, it's really neat, it's really fun. I I really love it. I can't wait to dominate the whole world when Warhammer Two, uh, well technically the DLC for Warhammer Two comes out. Uh, they also released a bunch of the stat lines for the Norska campaign, which comes out next week, which I'm super excited for. Um, I mean, I still need to, like, I still need to technically beat the game with vampire counts in Bretonia and uh, and then Norska, and I will have be beaten the game with every faction. Um, but uh, I'm just super, I'm super excited. I'm super into it. Um, I don't know. Have you been playing any PUBG? What's your PUBG update? Have any uh, new, any new strats made themselves apparent? Um. Not really. I haven't been playing a ton because I've been reading uh, a bunch. Oh, shit. You have been reading a bunch. I saw the Dark Tower, but you didn't yet, right? Yes, I have not. Yeah. Um, I saw it last night. I would say things, but we're going to have a whole fucking episode to see. Yeah, that. yeah. I, I watched 30 minutes of the Emoji movie, which was awful. Oof. <laughs> I, am, I, am, I am. Right now, I am in, in the throes of Insomnia, which is a weird book about an old man whose wife dies and he gets insomnia. And it gives him, like, weird magic powers, and uh, it's also about abortion. So, you know, there's that. Wow. It's, it's a very it's a very weird – and, like, it's a very weird book because, like, the like, – like, it seems – like, the, this abortion thing seems to be kind of, like, the main driver of the plot. Like, like this uh, – there's, like, a, a big – like, it's building to, like, this, 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 this kind of demonstration that's going to happen where, like, a woman is coming to town to speak about, like, the women's center in town – and, like, there's, like, two groups of protesters on both sides, and it just seems to be heating up. Um, and it's, it's it's a weird book. I don't know what else to say about it. I, I think it's good, but it's, like, very strange so far. I'm about halfway through it. Um, I'm about halfway through the Dark Tower series, so, you know. Are you think, do you think you're going to finish before oh, our podcast next week? I think I'm, I'm, I'm going to make it, <laughs> I think. I think I'll be fine. Um, it'll give me less time to listen to campaign podcasts before we go to Gen Con, but you know, it'll, I think, I think I'll make it. You have a whole plane ride for that, right? Yeah, but I've got 45 episodes left, um, of the campaign podcast to go through that are an hour apiece. Oh, holy shit. Well, um, yeah. Never mind. Um, I'm good, also, good, good, good try. I've started listening to them at double speed, which I, I prefer to listen to them at one time speed because they're like, I like listening to comedy at one time speed. Um, but, uh. Yeah. I, that's interesting. I yeah, I don't listen to my my podcast at two x speed, but I get why you do it. And I think that's like a useful yeah. thing. I also watch YouTube videos at two times speed. Um, most that of would them. probably be helpful with the kinds of YouTube videos that you and I watch. Um, yeah, like like they are, like well, uh, some of them are good, but most of them I feel like suck. I don't. It's not even a suck thing. It's just kind of like a, I they they go just over me. Bunny hop always on times two. Um, yeah, like, yeah, he does go slow. Yeah, I mean, like it's not even like he goes. I also think that this is, like, a self-compounding problem. Like, when I start listening to one person two times, it's like everybody else seems so much slower in comparison. It's like, 
Ah, uh, this is so slow. I could just make it faster, and then everything starts to go up. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense, because a lot of the times I think about this stuff, I think about it in the context of, like, I want to absorb information. You know what I mean? Like, And whether that information is but Bunny Hop's opinion on whatever new release, you know, fine, kind of whatever. Um, uh, doing that inside of 20 minutes instead of inside of 40 minutes makes makes much more sense. I think another person that makes a ton of sense for that is Total Biscuit, but that's just because he fucking rambles like nobody's business. Yeah, no. Like, uh... I honestly wish that I could just, like, the more I watch, uh, the more I watch people who are very good about their editing and about scripting and stuff like that, the harder it becomes for me to watch Total Biscuit. Because he doesn't, and it kills me when, like, when, like, stuff I know a better, you know, like, a better YouTuber would kind of cut, I guess. Um, I don't know. Yeah. It seems bad. I, I, don't, I don't mean to say that he's a bad YouTuber, just that he's a bad, he's a bad YouTuber. Um, he also says the idea of a lot, which bothers me. Yeah. The idea of, the idea of, um, I don't know. Even people, I think, that do good editing, like, I think Philip DeFranco does great editing. I watch him at two times speed. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I have to say, Philip DeFranco, uh, I wish did more. Uh, I, I the the biggest thing I find with Philip DeFranco isn't that it like, yeah, you know, like he's like he's verbose or anything like that. You know, like he has the opposite problem. Whereas where I want there to be more about the, you know, I feel like he brings up a lot of stuff, but doesn't quite go into the amount of nuance. That yeah, I yeah, I agree. I, I would otherwise like. I also wish that he would do more stuff. I think that there's more newsworthy stuff than the stuff that he tends to cover. Um, yeah, like, I, I think he's kind of throw shade in that in that sense. I, I think he's kind of like in the middle of this place where like he's like part like a real news report, like a like he he talks about real news. But he also talks about a lot about like YouTube news. Um, and I think that, like, kind of splitting the difference there isn't as good. He's, he's talked about wanting to make larger form, larger format shows where he can go into kind of, like, like he, he's talked about make, make, wanting to make, like, a news network type thing. So we'll see yeah. how that turns out. Yeah, I mean, I would um, like him to do that. I think the biggest thing that he needs to realize in order to get there, essentially, is that, like, the things he chooses not to include also make, in a way, kind of a statement, in a way. You know what I mean? And, like, I like, like I think he's done very good long-form stuff. Like, I like that stuff that he did about Daddy 05 or whatever. That whole right. series was very, like, it was very, you know, methodical and nuanced. And it was, just, like, the perfect amount of time, it felt like, to get to get kind of everything across. Um, anyway, that has nothing to do with games. Why are we talking about this? <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway. if you would like to tell us what you think about Philip DeFranco, DeFranco. <laughs> your preferred uh, viewing speed, you can email us at podcast at somedervesplaygames.com or somedervesplaygames at gmail.com. You can watch the twitch.tv slash somedervesplaygames. You can follow us on Twitter and on uh, uh, Twitch and on facebook and on uh soundcloud and all that good stuff um and you can check out our website at subdurbsplaygames at gmail.com um where thing or not subdurbsplaygames.com wow um which loads most of the time and i think i've worked out most of the kinks and it's mostly just a feed of our of our podcast right now but we might add more stuff to it so um uh until then and until next time dear listeners until next time loyal listeners <laughs>